Chapter 15, They Do It Differently in Hollywood. We had seen many motion picture versions and had read stories of alligator hunting. Consequently, we felt that we knew how to go about the business. There were, according to these authorities, several methods of attack. The most highly recommended, as I remember it, was to fasten a stick sharpened at both ends onto a long handle forming a T-square. With this in your hand, you quietly approached the unsuspecting alligator who dropped its jaw, no doubt in amazement, at sight of you. Seeing this opportunity, you thrust the sharpened stick down the alligator's throat, whereupon the animal shut its jaws, thereby pinning them together, and you had your alligator. Nice work. In case this method did not appeal to your sense of sportsmanship, Hollywood gave you an alternative. The second procedure differed from the first, in that you immediately jumped upon the alligator's back, and firmly grasping each jaw, pried its mouth open, holding the jaws well apart, until a confederate had time to shove a log between its teeth. The alligator, unaware of the significance of this maneuver, obligingly clamped its jaws upon the log, and you had your alligator. There was, of course, the less spectacular method of shooting them, but... Judging from the pictured versions, this was seldom done in Hollywood. We paddled slowly and quietly up the lagoon, but each alligator we sighted slid into the water before we could draw our guns. In the pictures, we had seen canoes paddling down lagoons with alligators swarming round them. These alligators must have lacked the fearlessness of the Hollywood variety, because we couldn't get within 100 yards of them. Huge ones sunned themselves on the banks, but invariably disappeared into the water at our approach. I got one shot at a big fellow sleeping on a bank, but apparently did him no damage, for he too slid into the water to rejoin his friends. At this point, the lagoon narrowed down to a small channel choked with fallen logs, Here, an alligator was swimming underwater. I grabbed the harpoon and, scrambling to the bow, launched it with all my force. The shaft bobbed sideways, then shot up the lagoon, cutting the water so fast it fairly sang. The line grew taut with a jerk that nearly took the canoe out from under me. I catapulted down on top of Ginger, reaching out in all directions for hand and toe holds. While we were untangling ourselves, the line went slack. I bounced back to the bow and began pulling it in. Then things began to happen. A great tail flashed through the air, slapped the canoe just once, and we were in the water, swimming madly to retrieve it. I reached up to grasp the gunwale, but the canoe was jerked out of my fingers and went skimming merrily up the lagoon, towed by the drunkenly waving harpoon shaft. 
Weighted down by our gun belts, we shipped a lot of dirty lagoon water before we finally reached the shore to find the canoe nowhere in sight. A fine pair of alligator hunters we've turned out to be, I said disgustedly. They certainly do have these things better in Hollywood, or maybe that gator doesn't know the rules. He not only dumps us, but steals the canoe as well. We'd better get it back before he decides to chew it into kindling wood. Yes, and the fun starts from now on, Ginger remarked. It ought to be a picnic going through this place barefoot, for our for our horaches were in the canoe. <clears throat> horaches. We plowed through the dense growth, scrambling over, under, and round fallen trees, weaving through thick growths of palm. It was impossible to hurry. We had to scan the ground at every step or take the chance of being bitten by a snake, centipede, or scorpion. At every opportunity, we worked down to the water's edge, hoping for a sight of the canoe. Finally, we sighted her, lodged among the branches of a fallen tree on the far side of the lagoon. Now we are in a mess, I said, surveying the hundred yards of muddy water that separated us from the canoe. I'll have to swim for it. You'll do no such thing, Dan Lamb. I won't let you. I've no desire to become a widow. Ahead and behind us, the lagoon widened out. <clears throat> With its many branches, the distance was at least 50 miles by way of the ocean to the other side. My machete, as well as our huaraches, was in the canoe. With the machete, we might have cut logs and built a raft. Without it, there was no choice. I took off my gun belt and handed it to Ginger. Take the luger and shoot round me while I swim across. That will discourage any alligators hanging round. I'm not sure that I'm a good enough shot with your gun. I haven't used it enough, she objected. That's all right, I assured her. Just keep your nerve and a steady hand. Place your shots on each side of me, but please don't place them behind me because they're liable to ricochet. Before taking off, I climbed as far as I could get on a branch hanging over the water. A steady hand. And remember, I'm not an alligator. Then I dived. This is one way to break all existing swimming records. Ginger peppered the water with slugs while I made for the canoe. Something smacked my sore leg as I pulled myself up on deck. Pushing the canoe out from the entangling branches, I gave the harpoon line on the bow a vicious yank. There was a violent commotion among the fallen logs where our alligator had become entangled but I had no gun with which to deliver a coup de grace. I pulled in on the line until I was close to him. His huge jaws came out of the water with a snap that made me back away in a hurry. Tying the harpoon line to a tree instead of the bow, I paddled over to Ginger. Our clips and guns reloaded. We again approached the thoroughly angered alligator. 
Another tug on the line brought frantic splashings as we both pumped lead into the swirling water. A great tail lashed out, and then all was silent. Further tugging on the line brought no response. With extreme caution, we pulled over to the bobbing harpoon shaft. Gun in hand, I reached over and wiggled it. It was loose. The alligator had got away. While I untangled the line from the branches, we expressed our opinions of people who knew how alligator hunting should be done. We had lost our faith in Hollywood. On our way back to camp, we shot two ducks and an iguana. In camp, land crabs by the hundreds were swarming over everything. Ginger picked up a stick, but I stopped her before she had a chance to kill one. Dead land crabs would attract scores of hermit crabs and ants as well. We built a fire and tried to discourage them with blazing faggots. They were completely indifferent and continued their search for food. Now and then one would nip us on the foot. What on earth are we going to do? asked Ginger. There's no percentage in playing ring around a rosy any longer. I agreed, but reminded her that if we moved to the camp, the crabs would undoubtedly move with us. My suggestion was that we go down to the canoe and sit in it. We could build a fire on the wet sand and cook our supper. I would place a pile of wood within reach of the canoe so that later we could feed the fire without leaving it. This procedure gave us a short respite, but before we'd finished eating, the second invasion began. So we set the grub box on deck and retreated to the cockpit. After supper, we got out the charts and studied them. The stretch of coast before us was unattractive. With the exception of Tequepa Bay, one day's travel away, there was no shelter between our present position and Acapulco and it was rumored that the port authorities there were not too friendly towards penniless gringos. Ginger, however, said she had a hunch that we would have no trouble there. Quien sabe, I answered. What worries me is getting there. It's 150 miles the way we travel, and the stormy weather isn't over yet. It says in the pilot guide, Boat landing along this stretch of coast is almost impossible, as there is always a heavy surf. In the meantime, Ginger suggested, since we have an easy day's sailing tomorrow, we might as well sing while we're marooned. As I reached for the corroded harmonica, I asked her what she meant by marooned. Oh, a bit of wood and canvas completely surrounded by crabs, she answered. Let's sing them a song they might like to dance. We sang Red River Valley to an orchestral accompaniment of booming surf and the swish, swish of the waves upon the sand. An occasional high soprano note from the jungle told us that a nearby jaguar had joined the community sing. The next morning we sailed down to Tequepa Bay. It was a grand day for sailing with just enough wind to make the vagabunda prick up her ears.
we skipped along outside the breaker line, admiring the beauty of the steep sand banks, the waving cocoa palms, and the jungle-covered hills in the background. In the late afternoon, we came to a small island called Morro de las Animas and stopped there for two days to prepare food and distill water for the long jump ahead. We left the island in a dead calm and sweated at the paddles until noon. When we stopped to rest and eat, we were disappointed at the small progress we had made. During the meal, a small breeze came up, but the horizon to the south did not look too good. We hoisted sail and went on, making very poor time. Watching the mountain peaks inshore, I discovered that we were barely advancing. Ginger took the news calmly. What of it? We aren't going any place, so who cares? She got out her sewing and settled back in the cockpit. I wanted to turn back and make the attempt on another day, for I felt uneasy and didn't like the look of the horizon. Nonsense, said Ginger. We're just as well off here as we'd be with those land crabs. Sit down and play your harmonica and quit fussing. You're always becoming upset over horizons. I knew a good comeback to that. What about the time I'd wanted to land and she had insisted upon sailing all night? But there was no use in starting a quarrel. Damn women, anyway. One minute they were all for you. The next they were more interested in sewing than in getting to Acapulco. I got out my notebook and began to read. When I had finished, Ginger looked up and smiled. I'm sorry that I'm cross today. If you want to turn back, it's all right with me. I answered sulkily that we'd keep right on. It was a 24-hour run in any event, and with luck we might find a landing tomorrow. To dissipate my growing irritation, I picked up the paddle and bent over it hoping by work to avoid further argument. So this is adventuring, I thought, as the sweat streamed off my body, making a little puddle where I perched on deck. Ginger just sat and sewed. Can't you change the course a little so I'll be in the shade, she asked. Anything you say, I answered. We, as you've reminded me, aren't getting any place anyway, so it doesn't matter which way I steer. When the sun touched the horizon, the wind stopped altogether. Now what? I asked. It's time to eat. You might as well lower the sail, Ginger said. You don't seem very interested in the weather, do you? Well, if this calm means what I think it means, you're going to be a lot more interested before morning, my friend. You'd better tuck your sewing where it won't get wet. I've got good reasons for sewing, Ginger retorted. When you feel like biting someone, it's best to keep busy. We haven't been out of each other's sight for a whole year. Most of that time, we've been pretty cheerful whether we felt like it or not. Don't you think it would be a good idea to have a first-rate scrap and get it out of our systems? Sure, I agreed. Let's sit here and say nasty things. Or how about a good fight in the water? At least it would wash the sweat off. Ginger dived overboard, and I followed her. You asked for it, she said as she shoved me under. We had a royal battle. As I dived deep to grab her feet, I saw below me a dark shape that gradually turned to white. I clawed the surface. Sharks, we both raced for the canoe. 
Beat you, said Ginger, climbing aboard a split second ahead of me. I feel a lot better. Because you're out of the water? Not entirely for that reason, mostly because I needed a good fight. How would you like to eat? She replied. We ate dried turtle meat when, while we discussed the peculiar problem of human temperament and what to do about it. The perfectly natural irritations that long and enforced intimacy produced. After that, we laughed together at the scowling horizon. Ginger looked at it speculatively. It might be a good idea to put some turtle meat in our pockets just in case we daren't open the cockpit, she suggested. I asked her to roll me a cigarette out of the wild tobacco that we called dynamite. The more I smoke these things, the more inclined I am to quit smoking entirely, I said, as the smoke curled everywhere except at the mouthpiece. mouthpiece. A blast of wind from the south warned us to reef the sail. The vagabunda turned from shore, her gunwale dipping under the underwater as she gathered speed and headed out to sea. We asked for it, and we certainly got it, speeding in a jerky, splashing sprint towards the ominous blackness offshore. Ginger curled up in the cockpit. I'm not saying a thing, she said. While she tried to sleep, I wrestled with my usual problem, how to keep out of the breakers inshore, yet not tack so far out to sea that the current caught us. The sky was so overcast that I couldn't find a star to go by. The wind had changed, but I couldn't be sure which way or how much. <sighs> Excuse me. I set sail for the inshore tack, still trying to get directions and keeping an eye out for the breaker line. The ground swell was heavy, and suddenly a great sea crashed right in front of the canoe. Then I knew that we were in the breakers. I put my weight on the paddle to swing the canoe round, while Ginger jumped up to the halyards to lower the flapping sail. A dark shape loomed up ahead of us, capped by a glowing line of phosphorescence. A thousand tons of snarling, hissing water cast itself at the canoe. The bow shot skyward. It knocked Ginger back against me. I would have gone overboard except that her weight pinned my feet to the cockpit. Floundering flat on my back, I tried to hold on to the paddle, expecting momentarily to feel the canoe crash back in a somersault. Then air replaced the pounding, swirling, glowing water, and I knew that by some bit of luck we had managed to get through. <clears throat> For an interminable length of time, we fought in the breakers. The boom skipped its lashings, slipped its lashings, knocking me on the head. The cockpit was full of water. I finally believed that we had reached the end of our earthly rope. But meeting each onslaught as best we could, we somehow managed to get the canoe out into the comparative safety of the windswept sea. Ginger set her paddle down and felt for the bailing can. It's gone, she said mournfully. Just luck that we didn't lose everything, I retorted. We were equally responsible for our present fix. I for misjudging the direction of the wind. Ginger for her earlier indifference to the weather. Now we were both washed out. Ginger sat on the stern, worn out and shivering, while I tried to work on the sail. The boom had broken loose from the swivel joint at the mast, 
and the grommets of the sail had ripped loose from the mast's sides. We pulled the canvas cockpit bag up on deck and drained out the water. I found a bit of fish line to repair the sail, and we were off once more, running close-hauled at an angle off the coast. I felt in my pocket for the turtle meat. It had been washed away, so I got another piece out of the grub box. Ginger curled up against the cockpit while I stayed on deck. Soon she was asleep, undisturbed by the occasional wave that washed over her. I settled down to the business of sailing, hoping the morning star would soon make its appearance. About daylight, Ginger began to toss and moan. Oh, she said as she wakened, I've had the most horrible dream. The zipper on the cockpit broke, Dan. If that ever happens and water gets into the canoe during one of these storms, we'll be on the bottom before we know it. During breakfast, we discussed ways and means of preventing the natives from opening and closing the cockpit. Everywhere we went, it was one of their special pleasures, and it was nearly worn out. After the meal, I turned in while Ginger skippered. About two o'clock, I woke up to find that she had hoisted sail and was making fair time down the coast. Then she slept until sundown when I wakened her. The wind had increased, and it looked like another night at sea unless we picked up the Acapulco light soon. Ginger said she didn't care as long as we kept at sea. You've nothing to worry about, I said. By the looks of the weather, we'll be out of sight of land by morning. The evening meal consisted of more turtle meat, flat-tasting water, and a discussion of the paradisical delights of T-bone steak, coffee with cream in it, and chocolate-malted milks. The turtle meat, we reminded each other, was adventuring. I got out the harmonica and began to play an old sea shanty. The wind dropped and the sail hung slack. On the far horizon we could see the light of Acapulco blinking at us in derision. Nothing to do but paddle. We paddled until midnight. At 2 a.m., while I was contemplating the light that refused to come closer, Ginger, who had been asleep, woke up with the announcement that we were going to have a storm. I sent her back to sleep, telling her that I would waken her when it came. I paddled on, wondering if the skin was really worn off my backbone or merely wearing thin. Then the wind came up. We unreefed the sail and tried to beat the storm. Quivering, leaping, bounding, we dashed on with the storm at our heels. Soon we could faintly see the islets off the entrance to Acapulco Harbor. As we steered towards the entrance, I saw a bay south of the harbor and headed for it. We were in no condition to meet the officials of Acapulco. Marques Bay, or Marques Bay, opened its sheltering arms to us as the vagabunda skidded round the headland into calm water and to the sand beach that lay beyond. Curiously enough, we slept on our stomachs that night. On awakening, we were not pretty sights. Our hair hung in white strings, and we were crusted with salt from head to toe. 
We soaked our tired bodies in the warm, shallow water, then swam a while to relieve our cramped muscles. Dry clothes and hot coffee made us feel still better. Lying in the shade of the tent and resting, we discussed Acapulco. Here we could manage, but over there? It would be fun if, said Ginger a bit wistfully, Acapulco is one of the most beautiful ports in Mexico, and I knew what she was thinking. Yes, it would be fun if we had a peso or two to spend for civilized food, I answered. We gazed in the direction of the town and thought about all the things a town could mean. Bread and butter, ice cream, canned milk, a few yards of bright-colored cloth to make a new dress for Ginger. If... But we were adventurers, we told ourselves, out to live off the country, to make the jungle feed and clothe us. Anyway, we said, Acapulco was a tourist port. People wore white uniforms and pith helmets. We bragged a little. We didn't need civilization. We got out the charts and looked at them. The country ahead seemed interesting. If we could get past Tartar shoals without any trouble, we should have easy sailing from there to Salina Cruz.